Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Brian Lehrer's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Friday, November 17th. I'm Tiffany Hansen filling in for Brian, who is off today. Former Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger is with us now. The Republican was first elected to Congress back in 2010 at a time when the Tea Party movement was making its mark on his party and the political culture of the nation as a whole. In 12 years in the House, Kinzinger got a firsthand look at the ways in which the populist energy of the Tea Party gave rise to Trump's MAGA extremism. Once finding himself in disagreement with his party, Kinzinger was one of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump after January 6th and one of only two Republicans, along with Liz Cheney, to serve on the House January 6th Select Committee. He's written about his life and his political career in a new memoir called Renegade, Defending Democracy and Liberty in Our Divided Country. And in the book, he examines the transformation in his party. We'll talk about that transformation. And also this week's politics news. Adam Kinzinger, welcome to WNYC. So great to have you. It's good to be with you. There's always something. It doesn't matter when I call. There's always something to talk about. That's for sure. And I want to take a little trip down memory lane back to your election in 2010. I mentioned that was, you know, the Tea Party movement emerging. So what was your relationship? Remind listeners, what was your relationship to the Tea Party at that time? Well, it was interesting. In 2010, the Tea Party was really, I mean, look, I I went to a Tea Party rally that had like nine, almost 10,000 people at it in a suburb of Chicago, New Lenox, Illinois. And, uh, you know, it was at that time just kind of people that were wanting to change the way government was working. And so I certainly would say I would be, I would have been a Tea Partier in 2010. But what I think a lot of people need to understand, I talk about this in the book, is just how the Tea Party and frankly, the movement, which ultimately would become the MAGA movement, how it evolved over time. So, you know, in 2010, we we end up winning the House of Representatives in a big way. And the vast majority of that, like Tea Party energy dissipated out. And, you know, people weren't going to these rallies anymore. Now they'd start having 100 or 200 at them instead of 10,000. And the Tea Party then became even more radicalized because it wasn't then just about, hey, we want Republicans to take the House. Then it became quite honestly, a bit of a grift where people just tried to make money on it and tried to get more and more radical. So I broke with the Tea Party fairly early, actually, and uh, it kind of created a bit of a tense relationship between me and uh, I guess what would eventually be the tea, later Tea Party, the MAGA movement and uh, things like that. So it was certainly an interesting 12 years uh, in that process. So you see the sort of genesis of your, I don't know, so departure from some of your colleagues, not really departure, but you know what I'm getting at, your sort yeah. of movement away from some of the other members of your party really happening or starting to happen early on in your career. Yeah. So if you think about what actually ends up happening is, well, so, okay, so I get elected and before I actually take office, so that like two month kind of, month kind of intervening period, the Tea Party uh, or what would be the Tea Party Express, I think, ultimately ended up doxing members of Congress that weren't going to go to some weird Tea Party orientation that they were having in D.C. And so I remember flying a military mission because I'm still in the Air Guard and uh, I landed and I turned on my phone 
and it was just it was blowing up and it was these people that were like you need to go to the tea party orientation not the you know establishment orientation and starting about then it's like okay this is going to be a bit of a bit of a problem so you know when you saw like the speaker race recently you saw that you know 25 people that were voting against jim jordan all that kind of stuff those divisions in the party have kind of always existed they're just now really coming to the forefront and uh, i started to see those divisions really i'd say almost day one in congress i do want to get to some other news about um spending um yeah. and i want to talk as it specifically specifically excuse me specifically relates to our speakers, most recent speakers of the House. Um, Kevin McCarthy, let's start there. So what's interesting to me is that Mike Johnson, our new speaker, just got a continuing resolution through the House. We avoided a shutdown. Kevin McCarthy did essentially the same thing and lost his job for it, presumably, or at least part of the reason why he did. So talk about that a little bit and why the case is so different, why we're not seeing calls right now for Mike Johnson to be out of there. Well, I think it's very simple. I think they burned they burned their like uh what's the word there? all their patience juice, right? Like they basically went through this big speaker battle that lasted, I don't know, 3 weeks or whatever and they finally kind of came to agree with Mike Johnson as the speaker basically as kind of the lowest common denominator and, and you know, most people didn't know who Mike Johnson was. Uh Ironically, or sadly, I guess, Mike Johnson was actually really one of the architects of the whole denialism of January 6th. But so I think you're going to see a lot of people kind of yell about it, complain about it. This uh, continuing resolution is now pushed. I think there's like two different ones pushed into like January and February. So once again, we're going to be mm. in this exact moment after Christmas. And uh, and so that'll be a question. And at that point, does do they try to inflict more damage on him? I just think at this moment, there's just not enough time left in the term for the uh, what we shall politely call the exotics in the caucus, the crazies, I call them, uh, for them to uh, mount another insurrection, if you will, proverbially against the speaker. So I think he's probably got a little more leverage to play with. But, uh, you know, the thing I'm most passionate about, honestly, is, is Ukraine aid. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think... You know, the fact that Ukraine aid wasn't in this continuing resolution was a big disappointment. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, desire to get an Israeli uh, aid package done. And I think that will be hopefully the vehicle by which you can get Ukraine done and, and a few other things. But I, I don't know when that's going to come. And, and I frankly don't have a great answer for why my my why the Republican Party has become such a really anti-Ukraine, pro-Russia party, except that it's more just a culture fight than it is anything that actually makes sense. Well, what does that say for the likelihood that aid will happen? Well, it's tough, uh, you know, and I never, I I remember talking to a lot of my Ukrainian counterparts when I was in. I'm, I'm very much a big advocate for supporting Ukraine, as you can tell. And, uh, you know, and I told him, like, ah, you don't have to worry. There'll be some people that make some noise. And sadly, that prediction was incorrect. I, I think, again, it's it's probably a 50-50 chance it gets done. But the real question is, will somebody like Mitch McConnell uh, and some of the Republicans in the House that do care about Ukraine, will they hold out when inevitably some Israel aid package is put on the floor Will they hold out and say, I will not support Israel aid without Ukraine attached? And now if if people are able to hold out and do that, 
I think you'll ultimately see Ukraine come to the floor as well as part of a deal. If they just feel too much political pressure of like, oh, I just got to vote for this Israel aid and let's get this signed into law, uh, then I think it makes it really tough for Ukraine. And I'll tell you, Ukraine is the fight of our generation. This is, you know, there's this like kind of dark feeling about the country and we feel like we're our best days are behind us, which is garbage, by the way. It's just that's what politicians like to say to to get likes and fears and all that stuff and raise money. Uh, But if we do abandon Ukraine, I think it will be a stain on our country for a long time. Okay, moving to other news. Uh, New York Republican George Santos uh, there oh, yeah. was there was a house ethics house ethics report we saw yesterday. Lawmakers aren't really back until after Thanksgiving, so I'm wondering if you think. Well, first of all, what did you think about the report? And then, second of all, do you think we'll see a second effort, actually probably a third effort, to expel the congressman once everybody's back after Thanksgiving? Well, let me editorialize for a second and say, what? Come on, New York. Like, come on. Don't put people like this in office. Uh, so I don't obviously I don't think he survives after this term. Um, I think that this report was so bad, uh, you know, using campaign money. Well, not even really using campaign money. People would give him campaign money above the limit and he just would then transfer that to his personal bank account. It really made no effort to even launder it, I would say. Uh, spent money on Botox, on OnlyFans. Like, I mean, you just can't get a more cut and dry. And so if you don't expel George Santos for this, then really no member of Congress should or could be expelled for anything, maybe except like openly murdering somebody on the floor. So uh, I do think that there is enough growing kind of tension and anger that he will be gone probably when that vote comes up again. Uh, Again, the only thing working on on his behalf right now now is just that uh, the majority is so tight. And the fact that the majority is so tight, uh, you know, they can't really afford to lose anything. That said, they're not passing anything anyway. It's not like that three vote majority is much more effective than a two vote or whatever it is, four and a three. So it'll be, I think they do end up expelling him. So cynicism won't win out. It won't just be a case of we need the reliable vote for the next year. Well, uh, that's my prediction is that cynicism won't win out on this one. Now, I've been disappointed and wrong a few times this year, I have to admit, you know, where I thought we'd uh, I thought that, you know, we couldn't get any lower and we sprinted to a lower position. So, uh, you know, it's it's I'm not going to put all my money on it. But if uh, God came down and said you had to bet on one side or the other, I would certainly bet on he's going to be expelled. Oh, and look at this. Here we go, Adam. A little bit of news. The chairman of the House Ethics Committee announced Friday he has filed a resolution to force a vote on expelling Representative yeah. George Santos from Congress one day after the report. So there we have it. Um, let's uh, let's bring some callers in. Uh, how about we hear from Carl in Wilton, Connecticut? Good morning, or Carol? Sorry, Carol. Carol in Wilton, Connecticut. Good morning, Carol. What's your question? Um, hi, um, I, hey. I'm so happy to talk with the representative. Um, the January 6th committee did such a phenomenal job. It was amazing. Um, and I just want, I'm, I'm interested in how working on that committee, if it deepened your relationships with some of the Democrats on that committee, if it changed your relationships with them, what was that experience like? Well, thanks, Carol. Thanks for the call. And yeah, I mean, look, it's it's uh, the committee is was a 
it sounds cheap to say it. It was historic. And it, it was historic in my mind, not just in what we were able to do, not just in the fact that I think the only reason Donald Trump is facing justice is because of the work of the committee. In fact, I don't think that. I know that. And so, you know, there's a there's a his, history there. But, you know, never really. I mean, I, I thought the committee was going to fail when I agreed to be on it, because think of it. When is a congressional committee actually succeeded at anything like never? And uh, but I knew we had to do it. I knew it was important work. And and so it was like God himself almost authored who was on that committee, because each person on that committee had a very unique skill set that was necessary and unlike the others. You know, Liz Cheney was a bulldog. I mean, she was the one that really drove this investigation. Benny Thompson was, uh, you know, the only guy in the House of Representatives that would be that would be okay with being the chairman of a very important committee and allowing other people to get the spotlight, like Liz Cheney and like myself, because he knew it was important to have Republicans do that. And so it very much deepened my relationships, not just with the Democrats on that committee, but a lot more because when you're in politics, you, you know, we, we all kind of behind the scenes get along for the most part because it's kind of like a, a job. It's gotten worse, by the way. But when I was there, particularly, everybody got along fairly well, uh, except for just natural personality conflicts. But you, you, every side demonizes the other side a little bit, even if you don't dehumanize them. It's like, okay, well, the, the Democrats don't really like the Constitution and the Democrats say, well, the Republicans don't like the Constitution. Well, what I came to realize is the people on that committee were just as passionate about this country and the survival of democracy as I was. You know, a little funny story. So uh, Adam Schiff, uh, he and I had known each other fairly well in, in Congress, even prior to the committee. But when I got there in the committee, I'm an Air Force pilot, and I've I've learned in my job as an Air Force pilot that you have to, you know, give people call signs and nicknames, and you have mm -hmm. to be the first to do it, or else you get it. And uh, so I immediately called Adam Adam Senior, so that I could point out that I'm younger than him, and I was Adam Junior, <laughs> and uh, and that stuck in the committee. So we always had a good rapport about that, and and uh, so yeah, the relationships were very good, and you came. We very much respected each other, and at every now and then we still have a group text that gets lit up. Well, hold on, Adam, because in the introduction, <laughs> <laughs> in the introduction to your book, you said politicians speak and behave as if Congress itself were a battlefield. So you're giving me two different stories here. So there, you're saying that there's like on the battlefield, off the battlefield camaraderie, or is is I mean the the discord seems real. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So look, it's it's so specifically on our committee, there wasn't like an on and off the battlefield behavior. We all got along. We were all pulling in the same direction. When I was in Congress, for the most part, when the cameras were off and you weren't in a committee, you could have general like get alongness, I guess is not a real word, but I'll use it with Democrats. And then the cameras came on and it became a war. In the last few years, that's gotten worse. It's got it, the the behind the scenes has gotten worse, and it's frankly gotten worse even among Republicans, as you can now see it's coming out. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's you know they, they raise money on fear, they raise money on demonizing the other side, and uh, and quite honestly, it's it, I think it's dangerous for democracy. I I think the America's best years are ahead of us. I, I really do believe that, but I think we have to go through some pretty dark stuff here uh, to get to that point. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Adam Kinzinger, Illinois congressman, about his new book, his his new, far, sorry, former, sorry, 
<laughs> Former Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger about his new book, Renegade, Defending Democracy and Liberty in Our Divided Country. And we are taking your questions. Adam, we've mentioned the former president here a bit. Um you say in your book, if San- if the Santos story marked a special low for the GOP candidate for Congress, McCarthy's pursuit of the speakership offered a more serious evidence of how Republican le- leaders will debase themselves. And I assume you mean debase themselves, what, in service of the former president? Or how would you finish that thought for us? Yes, I would finish it in yes, all of the above. <laughs> Debasing themselves morally uh, you know, so I write in the book about how Kevin McCarthy actually shoulder checked me twice on the floor of the house. And, you know, it's it's it wasn't a friendly shoulder check like we do sometimes, you know, me and the military guys. Right. And 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 it's ironic that basically a week after the book comes out, you know, he elbows uh, this congressman in Tennessee in the, in the kidney, because what what that shows is. Kevin McCarthy is actually a good politician. I'll give him that. He's he's good at speaking to people. He's great at raising money. But he totally sold his soul uh, to become speaker by, you know, basically embracing Donald Trump. The second he went to Mar-a-Lago, he resurrected Donald Trump politically. Now, when you know that you're in such a position that literally the future of the country that trajectory will change based on what you do. Very few people get in a position like that. He was in one. And he made the decision to embrace Donald Trump because he couldn't take him down in time for the speakership vote. And that had an impact on the country and the future of the GOP. And then he loses his speakership. So he debased himself, his moral compass for what? Ultimately to lose, to be the only guy to ever lose the speakership midterm like that. Uh, What you're seeing now in his physical out. I guess outlay his outlash or whatever is 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 a guy that's like struggling with his own moral compass and is kind of projecting on other people. So debasing what you believe, your moral fortitude, your internal red line for the sole purpose of power is not something that will ever fill or satisfy anybody. And frankly, I think it leads to a very deep existential crisis. I wonder, we have a text here. What does Mr. Kinzinger think about the possibility of a third party? We have the fracture we've seen in the Republic and talked about in the Republican Party. We have, you know, RFK running. We have Dean yeah. Phillips in the Democrats who's, you know, mounting a primary challenge to the president. So is it time for a third party? And and if so, uh, what, what are the chances that there could be some real traction? I mean, the numbers from RFK are interesting. He's, you know, he's some reports have him polling in the 20s. Yeah, it's interesting because I've seen to this morning, in fact, I saw anecdote. It's anecdotal, but it was like somebody that said they were voting for RFK because of his support of vaccines. And it goes to show that's a low information voter that somehow thinks RFK is a vaccine advocate. He's the opposite. He's a vaccine conspiracy theorist. I think with RFK, there's a lot of people that don't really know how he's kind of gone off the deep end, quite honestly, and they still think of kind of the Kennedy legacy. But he will take some some percent. I, I think, look, I would love to see a centrist moderate party. I'd love to see it. And, you know, we'd need 20 minutes to explain why that's tough to do. But I'd love to see it happen. This is a moment, though, where if it comes to a Joe Manchin type, you know, and no labels, my concern, I'll vote for Joe Biden. 
But somebody like me, the people that Biden needs to win in this election, if you give them an, an off ramp to vote for somebody that's not as disagreeable as Joe Biden on policies, they'll take it. And the problem is that elects Donald Trump because there's not many people that are going to be Donald Trump supporters that go to a third party because, I don't know, they want a way out. Uh, but there are going to be a lot of people that maybe have to hold their nose to vote for Joe Biden that would now say, okay, I'll just vote for Joe Manchin and soothe my conscience. The other thing is, let's say Joe Manchin actually wins a couple of states. What happens then? Well, that probably denies anybody 270 electoral votes to become president. In that case, the president is not elected by who gets the most electoral votes then. It goes to the House of Representatives to vote for, and the, and it's just by state delegation, and the Republicans have the majority. Donald Trump will win in that scenario, and uh, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, play the, What's the second and third order effects here? Adam Kinzinger, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Adam Kinzinger is the former Illinois congressman who served on the January 6th House Select Committee. He's an Air Force veteran, CNN commentator, and the author of a new book, Renegade, Defending Democracy and Liberty in Our Divided Country. Adam, thanks so much for the time today. We appreciate it. It was great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.